Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. Did you know, for instance, that Paris, the city of light, the city of lovers, the city that's given all of us so much, also helped give the world the autopsy? Because in Paris, around the turn of the 19th century, you have an unusual collection of hospitals with many, many, many beds, more hospital beds in the city of Paris than collected together anywhere else in the world. That's Jeremy Green, a medical historian at Johns Hopkins. And there's sweeping periods of hospital reform, which brings all of the hospitals in Paris under a, a modernist sensibility of trying to rationalize the practice of medicine. This meant learning not just from living patients, but cadavers. And many, many, many of these patients died. Their body would be opened up and the same physician who examined them could then perform the autopsy and find the exact location of the lesion in their body. And so we talk about this as this moment of great expansion of the practice of pathological anatomy in which disease could be thought of as a lesion, a problem that took place in a specific part of the body that could be characterized both clinically and also pathologically after the demise of the patient. Welcome to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner, and the theme of tonight's episode, medicine. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is coming to you tonight from Boston, Massachusetts, and the panel we've put together is wicked smart. Would you please welcome <laughs> the Harvard Medical School professor, Bapu Jenna, comedian Christine Hurley, and the head athletic trainer for the New England Revolution, Evan Allen. <laughs> Bapu Jenna, we'll start with you. What do we know so far? We know that you are a physician, a professor of medicine, and an economist. Uh, we know that your healthcare research is creative and often controversial, like you're finding that doctors who are more experienced are associated with higher patient mortality, which is a lovely thought. Uh, we know that as an undergrad at MIT, <laughs> you used to freestyle rap on the college radio station. So, Papu Jenna, tell us something we don't yet know about you. Uh, okay, so let me take you back to my grad school days. Uh, there's a guy named Steve Levitt, who you know quite well. Uh, the first idea that I approached Steve Levitt with was to study whether or not Viagra leads to divorce. The idea is, here's this drug that comes on the market. Some men who weren't having a lot of sex all of a sudden started to have sex. Outside option goes up. Maybe they get divorced more often. Now, we didn't have any good data to support that, but what we did find was that rates of STDs go up. And in fact, there is a secular trend in STD rates among the elderly part of which is probably caused by Viagra. <laughs> All right, very glad to have you here tonight, Bapu. Our next panelist tonight, the comedian Christine Hurley. Let's see what we know about you. We know that you've been married for 29 years to your high school sweetheart, Jimmy, who's a firefighter, and that you've got five kids. We know you got your start on Nickelodeon's search for the funniest mom in America, and that you now call yourself the most booked comic in New England. I, I'm assuming that's just so you can get away from your five kids now, yeah? You better believe it is. We know that when you let your kids pack their own lunches, 
One of your boys packed some leftover Kung Pao chicken and two wine coolers. Yes. <laughs> it's a true story. All right, Christine, uh, keeping in mind tonight's theme, medicine, uh, tell us something we don't know about you, please. Uh, well, I had the five kids, and after I had the five kids, uh, I had the gastric bypass performed, and I lost about 150 pounds, winner, winner, chicken dinner, so <laughs> now uh, no more chicken dinner, and now I'm, you know, and I've turned into quite a lovely specimen. You are indeed, yeah. <laughs> Christine, very happy to have you here tonight. And our final panelist, Evan Allen. We know that you, sir, are head athletic trainer for the New England Revolution of Major League Soccer, and before that, you worked with some people called the New England Patriots, says here. Uh, uh, Evan, we know you grew up in rural Michigan, attended Liberty University in Virginia, where it says here you worked as an athletic trainer for the football, cross-country, basketball, baseball, and track and field team. So it looks like soccer was the one sport you avoided until you needed an actual job. At all costs, yeah, pretty much. We know you became a Carolina basketball fanatic when you went to grad school at UNC Chapel Hill, a fanaticism that today you describe as unhealthy. Evan Allen, tell us something then we don't yet know about you, please. Um, so about fifth grade, I played one game of soccer and <laughs> never kicked a soccer ball again yeah. um, until I started for the revolution, which, I don't know, looking back now, I wish I had given that I have to rehab soccer players and return them to playing soccer, it'd be nice to be able to kick a soccer now, ball. Now, do the players know that you have this deep antipathy for soccer lifelong? <laughs> I'd like to think that I've opened my horizon since I started <laughs> yeah, working for the yeah. team. All right, no. Evan, Christine, and Bapu, so happy to have all of you here tonight to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Here's how it works. Guests from the audience will come on stage and they'll try to wow us with their IDKs or I don't knows. You are free to ask them anything you want, and eventually you'll pick a winner based on three simple criteria. Number one, did they tell you something you truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? To help with that demonstrably true part, let's meet tonight's real-time fact-checker, Carrie Goldberg. Carrie covers medicine, health, and science at WBUR, one of the wonderful public radio stations here in Boston. Before that, she was a reporter for the Boston Globe and the New York Times. So, Carrie Goldberg, how important is it that we have a live fact checker for an episode about medicine? Well, Stephen, I would argue that it's extraordinarily important because there's just so much pseudoscientific crap. And even the more solid studies in the big journals that are constantly coming out, you know, butter will kill you. No, no, butter is really good for you. There are so many contradictory ones that you just stop believing any single one of them. So I think I can offer you that sort of skepticism that's been built up over years. Okay. uh, Carrie, we're happy to have you here tonight. It is time now to play. Tell me something I don't know. Tonight's theme, remember, medicine causes, cures, breakthroughs, and setbacks. Would you please welcome our first contestant, Jennifer Beavis. Jennifer, happy to have you here. Uh, Tell us a bit about yourself. I'm from Weymouth, and I work in tissue typing at a major hospital here in Boston. All right, Jennifer, I'm ready. So are our panelists, Bapu Jenna, Christine Hurley, and Evan Allen. So what do you know that's worth knowing that you think they don't know? Okay, so here's my question. Some people collect coins. Some people collect baseball cards. And some people collect organs. 
They're not serial killers, so how are they doing this? Legally? Legally, yes. Musical organs. Oh, like Farfises and Hammonds, yeah. yeah. Sure. Good answer. True? No. So are they doing this for fun, or are they doing it as part of their job? Neither. What are they doing with their organs? They're just kind of hanging on to them. Are they preserving them? I guess you could say that. They're not wearing are it as like a mask. Are they like the cleanup crews after the murder scenes, God forbid? Or? Are they collecting from live people or dead people? Both. Both. Oh, gee. <laughs> <laughs> you, just, you just rocked my does world. It, does okay. it have anything to do with if I checked yes or no on organ donor on my license? There you go, yeah. Really? So if someone gets a kidney transplant, usually as long as there are no contraindications to transplant, instead of taking the old kidneys out, a surgeon will opt to leave the new kidneys in. And they'll just keep adding them in, as many as they can fit. Um, <laughs> Does life just get better and better? Like, once you have more than one functioning kidney, can you, like, do more stunts well, or drinking? The other kidneys aren't functioning. They're just in there. So normally your kidneys are in the back, um, just kind of behind your intestines. And they just kind of sit there. And it's easier for a surgeon to just add a new kidney in rather than take the old ones out. It's safer for the patient and it's easier for the surgeon. So they'll add the new kidneys into the pelvic cavity. Uh, the first one will kind of go on the right or the left um, and they'll attach it to the veins and arteries and they'll attach the donor kidney's ureter to the bladder and just put the whole system together. Um, and then if they need another transplant, they'll do it on the other side. And after that, they'll do it in the front. Um, but once they run out of room, they kind of have to take them out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I so would think you have other problems by the time you need your fifth kidney. <laughs> no? So I, I have a question for you. Yeah. So which surgeon thought this was a good idea in the first place? Well, originally the first transplants that were done, the kidney was hooked up inside your forearm. Like the kidney was just kind of stuck there and it put into the system. And they covered it with a plastic bag and they let the urine drain into a jar. Um, and this was done on a patient uh, who was in acute renal failure, so she needed dialysis, but they hadn't invented dialysis yet. And they did that with the kidney, then took it off, and she was released four days later, completely fine. We don't do that in Mass General Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not plug. But, but, Bapu, it sounds like you don't believe that that's a good way of I doing it. I mean, it, it sounds like a creative approach. I mean, I, I Jen, is this, you're saying this is typical, though. It is typical. Um, it, it's safer for the patient because you don't need to make extra cuts um, and, you know, it raises the risk of infection if you have to take the organ out and put the new one in. So the surgeon could just make the cut, put it in, hook it up, it's done. <laughs> what, what does it say, though, about human anatomy that there's just, like, room to stick an extra... Like, doesn't that seem like bad design? That you... <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> it's actually a good design because if something ever happens inside your body where an organ swells or, you know, something, God forbid, you have internal bleeding, there's room for the stuff to go and you, don't wa you won't, like, explode. Wow. <laughs> Before we finish up with Jennifer, uh, let's check in with our fact checker, Carrie Goldberg. Uh, uh, is it legit, a collection of kidneys? Yes, so this does check out. And in fact, it fits in with one of the many proofs that life is not fair, which is that in general, the recovery from kidney transplant is harder for the donor who gives the kidney than for the recipient. And also, we can't talk about kidney donations without pointing out that there's a gigantic shortage of kidneys in this country. Right? The good news is that the donations of organs are up in New England and many other areas. The bad news is that the big factor in that is the opioid epidemics. Mm, interesting. Uh, Carrie, thank you. And thank you, Jennifer Beavis, for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. Thank you.
<laughs> Would you please welcome our next contestant, Sumiko Makaru. Hey, Sumiko, who are you? What do you do? I am a veterinarian and an epidemiologist, and I do digital disease detection and social media listening for public health with uh, Epidemico at Booz Allen. And that gives us the opportunity to detect things earlier. And of course, if you're in public health, what you want to do is find an epidemic before it really takes off so you can intercede and reduce the total number of people that are affected by it. Excellent. Okay, Sumiko, the floor is yours. Go ahead. What do lizards have to do with Lyme disease burden? What's burden? What's the burden part uh, mean? The burden of the disease across the country. So the, the number of cases, kind of where they are, mm -hmm. how they happen. Lizards and Lyme disease panelists? Are they, are they tick carriers? Ticks do feed on lizards. Are they good for Lyme disease or bad for Lyme disease? They're good for us. So bad for Lyme. <laughs> Tell us the rest of the story, Sumiko. As probably everyone knows, you get Lyme disease from a tick bite. And ticks typically um, acquire Lyme disease by biting a mouse that's infected. They can't be born with it. And so when they go off and they're an adult and they bite a person or a dog, that person can get Lyme disease. On the West Coast, although that first meal is a mouse, the second meal is often a lizard. And the Western fence lizard has a naturally occurring borelicide. It's a spirochete-killing factor in its blood that'll eliminate borrelia. That's the cause of Lyme. And not only does it protect the lizard, it cures the tick. So the tick is now Lyme-free, and when it becomes an adult, it no longer has Lyme disease. So on the West Coast, it is less likely to have Lyme when it bites you. Mm. <laughs> So, I mean, maybe this is a naive or obvious question, but have people thought about bringing, what's the, the western fence lizard, would you call them? Yeah, the, it's a Bring relatively common. Uh, I, that I don't know. I'm not sure that it would be very happy here. I think we're a little cold for him. Then, of course, you'd have to deal with the lizard infestation. And, yes. and who would we bring in to eat them? <laughs> yeah. Well, they're cute. <laughs> uh, Carrie Goldberg, lizards as a natural firewall uh, for Lyme disease. Uh, what more can you tell us? Well, first of all, it's fascinating. Um, <laughs> and I'm so glad we're talking about Lyme disease because it's such a huge problem, as you can tell by the reaction. The latest estimates are something like 300,000 cases a year nationwide. And it's just wrecked the outdoors for us here right. in the Northeast, right? Um, now, the lizard thing, uh, mm, a couple of fact checks. So first of all, you, you can catch Lyme disease from a nymph tick. So before, yes. and in fact, the nymphs are considered the most dangerous ones. And they're dangerous because they're much smaller and harder to see. They're like the size of a poppy seed. And secondly, there could be other factors at work here, I'm told, in this East yes. Coast, West Coast difference. So the tick species are different. The mouse species are different. Yep. Climate's different. And of course, here in the East is where the epidemic started. But all I can say is I sure do hope that this work... <laughs> yields a cure or a workable vaccine in humans because I really want to go back out into the woods. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. Yeah. Thank you, Carrie. Sumiko Makaro, great stuff. Thank you so <laughs> Thank much. You. Awesome. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Jonathan Hall. Hey, Jonathan, uh, what's your story? What do you do? I'm a paramedic. I work on a ship at sea during the winters. Ooh. And the rest of the time, I'm a paramedic in my hometown of Brimfield, Massachusetts. All right, Jonathan Hall, what do you have for us tonight? Which of these would best provide you with the chance to live should you go into cardiac arrest? A, you could go to the gym for five days a week. 
B, you could never smoke cigarettes. C, you could eat a diet rich in fiber. Or D, you could move to Seattle. <laughs> Evan exercises his option A, right? Go to the gym yeah, five days a week. I don't, does that have anything to do with how weird Seattle is? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so wait, so what we're trying to determine here, Jonathan, is you're asking the panelists, what's the best way to avoid dying from a cardiac arrest? Is Absolutely. Right? What's, your, what's your best uh, way to survive a cardiac arrest? Uh, God forbid that you should go to right. one. So, a, Bapu, you're a doc, right? You tell me, are you, is that a statement or a question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> So going to the gym, whatever, we could argue five days a week. Exercise presumably is good for the heart. Yeah. Uh, Not smoking presumably good for the heart. Yeah. Fiber, you have any uh, argument with fiber? No, fiber one is great. No, it's good. Fiber one. I'm not paid by fiber one either. No, just just as a disclaimer. Uh, So moving to Seattle... Process of, I I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing it's either something around the types of emergency medical services that are there, the types of CPR that they might, or the types of care that they may provide. There's two types of trucks, stay in play, scoop and run. Yeah, so I what can type see, are they? Have you been to medical school? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would stay and play. Yeah, that was, it certainly that was my shows, yeah. So yeah, so if we're talking about like preventing a cardiac arrest, like certainly lifestyle choices are important. But if you've already gone into cardiac arrest, the care that the paramedics provide when responding to such medical emergencies is way more important um, than just, quote, like being healthy. So Seattle has like the best survival rate for victims of cardiac arrest, and it's about 60%. So over the last two decades, ambulances services there have developed a comprehensive system using bystander CPR, like you said, public access to fibrillators, advanced technology, and Dubner's favorite term, evidence-based medicine. Mm. So here, right here in Boston, where we are, um, they're in the middle of the pack for survivability of cardiac arrest, and it runs about uh, 38%. Other parts of the country can be really um, poor. So Detroit um, and New York, they only run as low as 2 or 3%, you know, so the changes are, are uh, low. Ooh, I'm staying so, here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My advice is to move to Seattle, like live like a decadent lifestyle. and. Uh, <laughs> I like it. Stop, stop down and introduce yourself to the paramedics. Maybe, <laughs> maybe bring them some coffee or something. And then, yeah. Yeah, that, so, that. so I, I feel compelled to point out that you are a paramedic telling us that paramedic care in Boston is better than New York. But I do want to know, like, where's, who did the study? Where's the data come from? Yeah, How- so there's a lot of data. There's a national registry that reports, and, and certainly, like, data is data. But, like, everybody self-reports their information and, and recovery rates. But in general, we can tell the trends. So... Um, emergency medical services that have adopted a community-wide response to cardiac arrest, just like it takes a village, and that involves involving the public to learn CPR. Um, Certainly, it's not something that's cheap or easy to do, but cities that are committed to do it um, across the whole community can absolutely make a difference in the care that that people get and the survivability. So the data is a little bit questionable, and it's a little bit gray, but I think your fact checker is going to find that there's there's a lot of information out there. Carrie Goldberg, that was a challenge if you've ever heard one. Uh, huge variance in cardiac arrest survival uh, rates based on paramedic response. How does it check out? So it rings true because we know that there are a lot of local and regional differences in medicine. But 
lifestyle choices are hugely overwhelmingly important in terms of whether you get heart disease or not. And heart disease is the number one killer in the United States and across the world. So just on the off chance that someone's takeaway could be, you know, go ahead and gorge on bacon and chips and figure the awesome EMS guy will save you when you blow. <laughs> no, no, really, really not. <laughs> and also just another little note about uh, bystander CPR. It's only a very small percentage of people who go into cardiac arrest and are, and are then worked on by a bystander who actually come out okay, mm. right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's so many factors involved, but there is a noticeable uh, effect of communities who've made a commitment to improve the care that the people who go into cardiac arrest in their communities get. So like, even if we argue or dibble about the numbers, which we can, um, what is good news is that we can make a difference and we can save more people just by implementing a bunch of things that, that we know work. Great to know. Jonathan Hall, thank you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Great job. It is time now for a quick break. When we return, more contestants and we make our panelists tell us something we don't know. If you'd like to be a contestant on a future show or attend one, please visit tmsidk.com. You can follow us on social media at tmsidk underscore show. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our panelists tonight, Bapu Jenna, Christine Hurley, and Evan Allen. Our fact checker is Carrie Goldberg. And tonight's theme, you'll recall, is medicine. To that end, earlier tonight, we asked our live audience here in Boston the following question. What is one medical folk remedy you swear by, even if you suspect there's absolutely no scientific basis for it. Panelists, I'd love each of you to read one reply from our audience. Uh, Bapu, you first. What do you have there? So our friend Marcus C. has provided some advice based on his family's own experience. We have put all our babies out in the bitter New England cold in a bassinet to help them sleep better. (laughs) It certainly helps the parents sleep better. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Uh, Christine Hurley, what do you have? Well, we have uh, MR, urinate on a dish towel and bury it in the backyard and all your warts will go away. (laughs) (laughs) All right, uh, Christine, thank you so much. Uh, Evan, what do you have there? Uh, Parker P. says, X out a mosquito with my fingernail to make it stop itching. I'm pretty sure I did this as a kid. X out, just just press an X into the mosquito bite. Thank you very much. All right, it is time now to get back to the game. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Brett King. Uh, Brett, tell us about yourself, please. I'm an assistant professor of dermatology at Yale University. Very good. Tell us something we don't know. So rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune disease uh, that causes joint pain. And sometimes physicians prescribe the medication Zelgians to alleviate that pain. It turns out that the drug also treats another condition. Any ideas what that disease is? Can you say the name of the drug again? Zelgians. So what other condition does a rheumatoid arthritis drug uh, help, help with, cure? What's the... Uh, treat. treat. Effectively treat. Yeah. Is it approved for this or do you just... It is not FDA approved for this condition. 
acne? No. And have you used this drug for that purpose? Many times. Erectile dysfunction? (laughs) Exactly. I knew you were going there. I knew you were going there. Uh, Evan, I'm curious, in your uh, training, uh, rehabilitating players, keeping them in shape, um, I'm guessing there's some off-label use going on there, yeah? Zeljans, it's an anti-inflammatory, I assume. In a sense. Is it a chronic condition or an acute condition? It is a chronic waxing and waning condition. So you're a dermatologist, like um, psoriasis or eczema? Um, that, that could be an answer, and indeed there's evidence for that, but, but, but not, that is not the answer I'm looking for. Well, sorry. Can you give us a hint about the commonness of this condition? Uh, it affects at least 1% of the population, which is not uncommon. Does it happen independent of other symptoms? Like, do you have it by itself, or does it often happen with rheumatoid arthritis? No, it, it, it often happens by itself. I think the panelists have been asking great questions, and, uh, and I feel like they might be getting close-ish, but you want to put us out of our misery and tell us what the answer is? Sure, sure. Yeah. So the uh, second most common form of hair loss after male pattern baldness mm-hmm. is an autoimmune disease called alopecia areata. It usually causes bald circles the size of dimes or silver dollars. Uh, in severe cases, it causes... Uh, complete loss of scalp hair, eyebrows, eyelashes, facial, and body hair. Uh, In a mouse model of the disease, scientists showed that the hair follicle secretes a protein that activates the body's immune cells, which in turn attack the hair follicle, which in turn secretes more protein. And it turns out that the medication Zelgans blocks activation of the immune cells, which halts the disease and restores hair growth. I wanted to try the medicine in patients with the most severe form of alopecia areata, and I did just this in a young man who had lost all of the hair on his head, eyebrows, eyelashes, facial and body hair, and in Chia pet-like fashion, he regrew everything. <laughs> over the course of several months. Wow. Almost three years later, I've treated well over 100 people, adults and adolescents, uh, with the most severe form of this disease. And uh, needless to say, there is much more hair on the earth today than there was before (laughs) I started. Panelists, anything more you want to know? Bapu, did you know anything about this? When you said alopecia areata, I'm thinking this sounds like an Italian pasta. It's not <laughs> close. It's fascinating. Whenever we hear about a drug being repurposed like this, something for something totally different, should it make us wonder a little bit if you know the primary mechanism by which the drug is supposed to work isn't that well understood? I, would, I mean, there's great examples of this. Aspirin is now being used, obviously, for heart disease for many years. It's also being used in colorectal cancers for certain types of genetic mutations that make it favorable to being treated by it. And so there's probably tons of other examples. These drugs do something very particular. And if a, a seemingly unrelated disease happens to happen by that same mechanism, then, then you can borrow a medicine from a disparate field of medicine to apply. Does it, it doesn't address, however, the more common um, cause of male pattern baldness, correct? I, if it did, I would not be here with this hairline. <laughs> <laughs>
Carrie Goldberg, Brett King is telling us about repurposing an arthritis drug for treatment of hair loss. Uh, What more can you tell us? Well, it does happen surprisingly often that a drug that's already on the shelf can be used for something else very helpful. And and in fact, the latest analysis from the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development puts the average cost of developing a new drug and bringing it all the way to market at $2.5 billion. So you've not only helped a bunch of people, you might have saved a couple of billion dollars, (laughs) which is great. Brett King, thank you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Great job. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Michael Tuvum. Hey, Michael, where are you from? What do you do? Um, I was originally trained uh, as a chemical engineer in uh, Moscow. And now I am uh, doing biology as a professor for uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, that's at the University of Texas, affiliated with the University yeah. of Texas? It's, uh, yeah, Very UT good. MD Anderson Cancer Center. Very good. Well, thank you for coming all the way from Texas, first of all. Michael, what do you have for us tonight? Uh, you all know that uh, bodies are being uh, threatened by multiple environmental threats, and uh, multiple defenses are being deployed in response. So what would be the most unappetizing way to defend ourselves? The most unappetizing way to defend ourselves from the things that assault our bodies on a regular basis? Yeah, I actually have in mind a particular organ. Is it the third kidney? It's not. And it has nothing to do with erectile dysfunction. I'm out. <laughs> Is there one organ or two organs? Well, actually, it's an organ Does it come made in pairs? of two. It's lungs. So you're saying what would be an unappetizing way to protect our lungs? Is yeah. That, yeah. From? Our respiration. Is it from, like, environmental things? Yes. Like pollution? Well, like everything. <laughs> <laughs> so the answer is not holding your breath? No. Unappetizing cannibalism? <laughs> oh, that's actually an appetizing way. Uh, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> you don't have to ingest your own fluids of any kind, do you? That's getting close. Ah, yeah. interesting. We need, we need another clue. <laughs> okay, uh, lungs uh, uh, have a huge surface. They also have to be very thin to allow, as most of us know, for gas exchange. That's the purpose. So they don't have skin to protect it. So the thing which protects the lungs is mucus. Mm. (laughs) Mucus. With each breath, we inhale innumerable pathogens, and they all have to be cleared out because uh, otherwise we would have been infected on the spot. Are you suggesting that we drink mucus? Yes. (laughs) Can you mix mucus with scotch? (laughs) (laughs) That's yet to be tried. So we have a, a... cells in our airways which uh, produce mucin proteins. Uh, And these mucin proteins uh, secreted create a thin blanket layer in our airways. And that blanket layer traps all the incoming pathogens, dust, all sorts of crap. In other cells, push this uh, blanket layer up the airways and ultimately into the mouth where it gets swallowed. 
to get neutralized by stomach acids and enzymes. So each of us, including the esteemed members of the panel and even Stephen <laughs> Dubner himself, <laughs> drinks a shot glass of mucus every day. I, I actually have two. <laughs> Just yeah. So the critical protection of our respiration is, uh, is a wonder of streaming mucus. Michael, and, I and dare say you know more about mucus than the rest of us combined ever will. Yeah. Uh, Carrie Goldberg, the magic and mystery of mucus, uh, what more can you tell us? So I accept Michael's beautiful descriptions of mucus as a wondrous substance, but it's also a very problematic substance, especially when it turns into the gobs of phlegm that are clogging up our noses and, and lungs. And um, I, I just wanted to share a very memorable recent passage from an NPR piece that was headlined, Why, oh, why is there phlegm? And it featured a Dr. Murray Ramanathan Jr. of Johns Hopkins. So you know how when you have a bug and you call your doctor, they'll often ask you what color your phlegm is. Because if it's green or yellow, it could indicate infection. Well, so Ramanathan says that as a sinus doctor, one of his worst nightmares is when his patients bring into his office little Ziploc baggies <laughs> and they say, look what I coughed out yesterday. And that was an image that stayed with me, and now it can stay with you. <laughs> oh, my well. goodness. Carrie, thank you. And Michael Tubum, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. And would you please welcome our final contestant of the evening, Clarissa Zimmerman Cooley. Hi, Clarissa. Where are you from? What do you do? Hi, I'm from Boston. Uh, I recently finished my PhD in electrical engineering at MIT, and I'm now a postdoc at the Massachusetts General Hospital at the Martino Center. Well, you certainly fit our medical theme. Let's hear what you've got. So most high-tech devices have gotten smaller and cheaper over the decades. The processors in our phones are a million times more powerful than computers that used to fill a room, for example. But what piece of medical equipment has gotten more expensive and bigger over time? Doctors? <laughs> Sorry. Is this a big piece of medical equipment or a small piece, relatively speaking? It's big. Big? Yeah. How long has it been around? Um, for about 30 years. Like an MRI machine? Yep, that's it. Oh. <laughs> nice! <laughs> can, I, can I just add, I, I don't want to be, how old, do you mind if I ask you how old you are? I'm 30. You're 30. I have a 27-year-old daughter who makes rolls of Pertucci's. I want to kill myself. <laughs> does, your, uh, does your daughter listen to podcasts? I'm curious to know. <laughs> um, okay. So, Clarissa, um, you work then with MRI scanners, yes. I gather, so yes? so I'm a postdoc at the Martino Center for Biomedical Imaging, and um, magnetic resonance imaging is the gold standard for soft tissue imaging in the body, but there are some major drawbacks to 
current hardware. Um, you know, current scanners are gigantic, very expensive, loud, require high power, and they're potentially dangerous when proper precautions aren't taken. And all of these things also make MRI scanners very immobile. So an MRI scanner can't travel to a battlefield, for example, or to a patient that's living in a remote location. So at the MGH Martino Center, we're working on developing a truly portable, low-cost MRI scanner for human brain imaging. Thanks. <laughs> so our, our prototype scanner weighs about 300 pounds, and it can easily be wheeled into a patient's room, plugged into a standard outlet, and safely operated by a clinician at the patient's bedside. Um, and we're able to make the scanners so much smaller by making two key changes. First, instead of making it big enough to image the whole body, our scanner will um, only scan the patient's head, which is arguably one of MRI's strongest applications. And second, we sort of leverage the ever-increasing power of computers to um, shrink the cost and size of the hardware. Um, so here's how it works. Conventional MRI scanners use magnets that are powered and manipulated by electric current. And so we replace this with a compact permanent magnet that fits around the head only and mechanically rotates. Um, but the price we pay for the simplification is messy data. So instead, we use more uh, complex um, algorithms to reconstruct the images. So um, in the future, when a patient has a stroke, um, and every second counts, our scanner could potentially um, recommend treatment from an ambulance, for example, instead of a facility 30 miles away. Wow. Evan, um, stroke and that kind of thing is not obviously a, a big issue with um, professional sports teams, um, but could you imagine uh, making good use of a more portable MRI scanner and what you do, or not yeah. really? What's the price tag on one of those bad boys? <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, we're aiming for less than 100K. Yeah, why don't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take six. <laughs> um, we're starting to use uh, ultrasound, like diagnostic ultrasound, a little more in the training rooms, because it's even more portable. And can I, we don't need to do with brain yeah. stuff. Yeah, can I ask, like, you're making it, you, you made a good argument for why just the head, right? But presumably, if it's someone like Evan and a football team or a soccer team, if there's a more orthopedic function, presumably you could follow with those, right? With versions for different yeah, parts. Uh, yeah, I think it could be useful for that sort of thing. Um, I think that those types of injuries are maybe not as time-sensitive and... Um, also, for, for small things like tears in the tendons, or it might be hard to see those things with the, this type of portable low-cost or low-field scanner. Is there any thought of putting these into ambulances? And, and in Europe, for example, they have mobile vans that have CT scans yeah, that scan yeah. people's head yeah, for exactly. stroke. You know, I think uh, CT scanners are also really good for diagnosing strokes, but um, MRI has a lot of advantages over CT. Um, one being that it doesn't use ionizing radiation, so it's um, safer for you know, both the patients and the, the person operating the scanner. Clarissa, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Would you please give one more hand to all our contestants tonight? I think they just did a great job. It is time now for our panelists to vote. They will use a ranked voting system to pick their favorites. The contestant with the highest overall ranking will be tonight's winner and will join us back on stage later. All right, then, who will it be? Clarissa Zimmerman Cooley with a portable MRI scanner. Michael Tuvim with the magic of mucus. 
Brett King with a new way to treat hairlessness. Jonathan Hall with where to have a cardiac arrest. Sumiko Makaru with lizards and Lyme disease. Or Jennifer Beavis with collecting kidneys. While the boats are being cast, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, why don't you spread the word and give it a nice rating on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening. Okay, the panelist votes are in. Once again, thanks so much to all our contestants. It's really a shame that only one of them can be the winner, but that's the way it works here. And so tonight, that winner with an IDK about a new way to treat hairlessness, Brett King. Congratulations. Brett, as a reward, you will receive this certificate of impressive knowledge, (laughs) which is suitable for framing. You'll also join us back on stage later to face one of our panelists in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Now, which panelist will you face? That is what we'll determine right after this. Welcome back. It is time now for our panelists, Bapu Jenna, Christine Hurley, and Evan Allen, to answer some lightning round questions that were written especially for them. So Bapu, physician, economist, rabble-rouser, We'll start with you. In 10 seconds or less, would you please answer the following questions? Which degree is harder to get, an MD or a PhD in economics? PhD in economics. How'd you do on your MCATs? 36. All right, let's run a few MCAT questions past you and see what you've retained, if we may. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a high score, though. (laughs) What is the product of water and pental ethanoate under acidic conditions? Nasty. In order to extract isobutyric acid from a solution of diethyl ether, one should wash the solution with what? Now, audience, I know you know, but don't help him out. Mucus. (laughs) (laughs) Should I stop now? I'm I'm on a roll. (laughs) As noted earlier, you found in your research that more experienced doctors are associated with higher patient mortality. Why and what's to be done? Oh, I think it's because of two things. One is the way that you, you practice is what you learn. So I finished residency about five years ago, and I'm not up to date on the most recent medical technologies and diagnostics. So my guess is that's a large part of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then what's to be done? I mean, what's a continuing ed? Is that Continuing medical education, yeah. 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 Measuring outcomes. So you're saying that you personally, as a doctor, have essentially deteriorated in the hour that we've been <laughs> I mean, together. Yeah, hypothetically, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Nicely done, Bapu Jenna. Thank you so much. <laughs> Next, the comedian Christine Hurley. You ready, Christine? Ready, ready. All right, here we go. In 10 seconds or less, you are the only Boston native on the panel. So why is Boston the best city in the world? Boston is the best city in the world because of the people and God, Jesus, because I live here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to know if having five kids essentially turns you into a doctor of sorts? Absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. By the fifth one, you just say, shake it off, take a tub. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say the name of each of your kids, and you get one word to describe them. Ready? Colleen. 
Go get her. Elizabeth. Brilliant. Ryan. Odd. <laughs> Joseph. Lazy. <laughs> and Brendan. Uh, a miraculous mistake. Uh. <laughs> One last question for you, Christine Hurley. What'd you get your husband for your most recent anniversary and what'd he get you? Ooh, I believe I got him a, a six pack of natural light, <laughs> um, some scratch tickets. And for my anniversary gift, he actually got me um, some Tums. Uh, some control top pantyhose, a little bit of root dye, and something to finally knock off that pesky UTI. (laughs) Thank you so much, Christine Hurley. On now to our final panelist, head athletic trainer for the New England Revolution, Evan Allen. Evan, we'll start with an easy one. Is soccer still your least favorite sport? No, I do enjoy soccer. Name three sports you hate more. Uh, Curling. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's all we need, really. Because uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, here's a question: Intense stretching before playing sports, good or bad? Bad. Mm. Sex before playing sports, good or bad? Uh, debatable. <laughs> uh, who's your favorite New England Patriot? Kevin Falk. Evan, I'm told you turned down an offer to work at Super Bowl 46 between the Patriots and the Giants, instead opting to do MLS preseason in Arizona. Uh, what were you thinking? I don't know. <laughs> Casa Grande, Arizona, which uh, if you've ever been there. Worth, worth missing a Super Bowl for. No, no, oh. no. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Evan, we know that your high school graduating class was tiny, just seven people. Yeah. Uh, name the other six. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Adam, Derek, I think there's another Evan. <laughs> Hannah, I'll get back to you on the yeah, other right. <laughs> Evan Allen, thank you very much. <laughs> it is time now for our live audience to pick one panelist who will now go on to face our contestant winner in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. So who will it be, Bapu Jenna? Christine Hurley or Evan Allen. Audience, would you please take out your phones and follow the texting instructions on the screen? All right, the audience votes have been tallied, and our panelist winner tonight with 60% of the vote, Bapu Jenna. Congratulations. Here's what's going to happen next. We now bring back our audience winner, Brett King, to face Bapu Jenna in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. All right, our final round is very simple. In a moment, we'll reveal a topic related somehow to tonight's theme, medicine. Uh, Brett and Bapu, you'll each have a minute to tell us something we don't know on that topic. Now, in case you're tempted to fabricate something, remember, fact checker Carrie Goldberg sitting right there. All right, what is our final topic tonight? The story of medicine, as we all know, is a story of trial and error with plenty of mistakes along the way. So that's our final topic tonight, mistakes. Not necessarily medical mistakes, so you might get extra points for that. Good luck. We'll give you a minute. 
While our finalists are thinking, let me remind you to visit tmsidk.com to get tickets to upcoming shows or if you'd like to be a contestant. If you'd like to suggest a theme for a future episode or recommend a panelist, give us a shout on Facebook or Twitter. We go by tmsidk underscore show. Okay, Bapu and Brett, it's time. You will tell us something we don't know about mistakes. Bapu, you get to go first. All right, so I'm going to solicit some audience participation. Raise your hand if you or any of your family members has ever seen a doctor who got the diagnosis wrong. Mm, that looks to be about oh. 70, 80 percent. Yeah, a lot of 70, 80 percent. So that's, that's spot on, actually. Uh, 10% of all medical encounters result in a diagnostic error, which is quite dramatic. Within this room, 80%, which makes sense because a lot of you have been to the doctors, your family's been to the doctors a lot of time. I think an interesting fact about diagnostic errors is where do they happen? They often happen in the emergency department. When you go to the ED, the doctor who sees you doesn't know why you're there, doesn't know what's going on, and sometimes they decide to send you home. So let me ask you another question. Out of 200 people who are sent from the emergency department to their home above the age of 65 years, what fraction do you think die within two weeks? Just throw out a number. 20, okay, these are really high. Turns out that about one to two out of 200 people who are seen in an emergency department in this country today will die within two weeks of being sent home. Our audience is very pessimistic there. They're killing off 30%. Of, I know, uh, yeah. I know. If you go to a hospital where you're less likely to be admitted to the hospital because the ED doctor sent you home, you're also slightly more likely to die within two weeks. That's my fact about mistakes. Thanks for that. Yeah, really cheery. Well done. (laughs) Brett King from Yale. Top that. I I feel like the mistake was that I'm going head-to-head with him. (laughs) 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 I think it's, it's, it's impossible to take care of people um, and their health without making yeah. errors along the way. It's just hopefully you don't make many and, and you're always conscious to minimize what those errors are. When you look back at the mistakes that you or colleagues have made, what would you say are the characteristics that you've identified in retrospect that led to them? And what have you done to alleviate that? I, I really practice with a good amount of fear of doing harm. If... If I had to choose a doctor who had uh, huge measures, let's say 10 out of 10 on a scale of humility or brilliance, which one do I want? Humility. On a scale of 1 to 10, what's your humility level? I have a 10 on humility. (laughs) Good job. Brett King, great job. Before we put this to an audience vote, Carrie, uh, I know you haven't had a lot of time uh, is there anything you can tell us either about the uh, the very high error rate in emergency departments or whether Brett King is indeed the most humble person any of us have <laughs> ever met? <laughs> so yes, I am turning here to Dr. Google, which is not normally a good idea. And uh, in fact, there is quite a recent study that found that Medicare patient deaths shortly after leaving the ER raised questions about rural hospitals. So that checks out. And um, humility... 
there's a book called The Silent World of Doctor and Patient in which the author Jay Katz says, socialization of physicians reinforces the universal human tendency to turn away from uncertainty. And so maybe that's kind of the crux of the problem, that you're constantly dealing with uncertainty. You're going to be arrogant or you're going to be humble. Mm, what a note to, to end this wonderful show on. <laughs> It is time now for the live audience to pick a winner. Remember the criteria, though. Was it something you did not know? Was it worth knowing? And was it demonstrably true? Uh, so let's make some noise first for our panelist, Bapu Jenna. That was some pretty substantial Boston noise. And now would you make some noise for Dr. Brett King? Uh, Well, very well done. Sounds to me like tonight's winner is Brett King. Congratulations. It really pays to be humble. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, aside from your own innate humility, what is your reward for winning tonight? Well, do you remember back at the top of the show when we heard about the role that Paris played in popularizing the autopsy? And the same physician who examined them could then perform the autopsy and find the exact location of the lesion in their body. What better way for you, Dr. King, to practice carving up bodies than the beloved board game Operation, yes? <laughs> we got you this deluxe French edition of Operation called Dr. Maboul, where you can remove the patient's pomme de dame, Adam's apple, Cool brise, broken heart, and cramp d'écrivain, or writer's cramp. Congratulations. And that is our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you didn't know about medicine. Thanks to our panelists, Bapu Jenna, Christine Hurley, and Evan Allen. To our fact checker, Carrie Goldberg. Thanks to our wonderful contestants, and especially thanks to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. Have a great night. And on the next episode, we are taking Tell Me Something I Don't Know to the Twin Cities. We're joined by John Moe, host of the Hilarious World of Depression podcast. This finally explains that expression I've always heard, Stephen, which is Tylenol in the morning, no liver warning, Tylenol at night, you won't feel all right. That's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, and Rachel Jacobs. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on TMSIDK.com. You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>